host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Sean Shapiro. Sean, what's going on, man? It's uh, a quiet day here compared to some other places in the world. So I'll... Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good day, though. We got some... Uh, looking out my window right now, we got some nice snow last night, so it's kind of peaceful, which is, I'm sure, the perfect setting for... What could be a wonderful topic today? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say here, <laughs> here in Vancouver, I can't share the same sentiments. Although the weather is is quite nice, no snow. Uh, it's warming up a little bit here, okay. um, but that sunny, sunny disposition outside uh, should not mask what's going on with the local team here. Where I, I, I guess I don't, I don't need to lead us in with a with like a introduction of oh, in case you missed it, because I feel like if you're listening to the show, you're probably aware of, of what we're talking about, but. Uh, we're going to do, in block one today, we're going to talk about Bruce Boudreaux and how the Canucks handled or mishandled the situation. Um, you know, now I, I did a show kind of mid to late last week, hinting at it and talking about talk it and, and all that. Now we finally mercifully, um, have reached the conclusion of a story that I would consider to be, uh, truly bewildering. Um, you know, they finally let Boudreaux go, uh, on Sunday after weeks of, basically publicly shaming him, uh, like talking about his successor and the person who's going to come take his job while leaving him just hanging in the wind, coaching this completely listless and, and quite frankly, talentless for the most part team. And so, you know, this is, we're going to get into the details of all this. And, and this is the most recent example for, for this Canucks organization. And it's certainly like optically reprehensible. Um, but I will say it shouldn't be remotely surprising because pretty much everything they've done over the past like decade or so now should make it entirely believable that they're capable of, of fumbling a decision and the execution of it in this manner, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's a mess. That's uh, it's <laughs> still a pretty way to put it right now. It's a mess. The looking, the and the more you examine it, the more you think each time you try to find like the redeeming, like oh, I can get that part. Like you can't find the. Even when you try to play the devil's advocate, you struggle to find it. <laughs> well, no, it, it's one of those things where, where, like the the Canucks have become a, a laughing stock of the league, right? Like it, it's, I don't know if you if you've had this experience, um, you know, just being here locally in Vancouver. I guess maybe this plays into it, but you see publicly like people like Andrew Cogliano and even Pete DeBoer yesterday. Um, coming out and, 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 and commenting on the situation, which is quite frankly, like surreal for the NHL because mm -hmm. so often everyone just, you know, stays tight lipped and, oh, yeah. you, know, you know, toes the company line, even if it's about a different team, like you're just not messing with it. You're not saying anything. You're trying to deflect as much as you can. So like, you know, the fact that we're hearing comments like that publicly is one thing. And then privately just getting messages from players, from, from, you know, front office uh, executives like just in in utter disbelief at what's going on and 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 just com poking complete fun at this organization and it's all of it is deserved like it's not yeah I don't think any of it is unjust any of it is unfair it's all of their own doing and I don't know it's it, it, it's crazy I don't I don't know if you've experienced that in terms of just um, you know people kind of chiming in and just trying to like figure out what on earth they're doing yeah the fact that they're willing to take it um on the record just shows how much like 
these there's I talked to players like early late last season, early this season. There's times I talked to players about like the arena situation in Arizona, and you would have kind of like the off the record catch up conversation, and you could definitely get the no one you could never actually you would definitely get the feeling of like man that's what they're doing there, but the Canucks situation is has been a, basically has gone past the turn off the microphone, we're ready to throw stones because that glass house is not even going to... We don't have to worry about breaking that glass house. Like, that's kind of what it's become with the Canucks situation. It's... I mean, it is... They, it's, it's hard to find a silver lining. It's hard to find a place that... Something that works. And it's... I know that it's one of only 32 NHL head coaching jobs, but it's still amazing to me that... You found someone willing to leave something else to take this job. Just it's it's still like I get it. There's only 32 NHL head coaching jobs, and the mat that and, and everyone thinks they're a genius on their coach and everything like that. But at the end of the day, why would you want to willingly go to Vancouver right now? I don't, I I don't know why. I was talking to a former uh, guy who's not he's not in the coaching business anymore, retired coach earlier today about something and. He brought up, he's like, he's like, I don't know. He's like, why would I ever, he's like, if, if I was, if I was uh, someone in his, the age where they were still coaching and everything like that, why would I, why would I ever go to the Canucks willingly? That's like, I don't, that's the part that's still kind of the fact that there's a, a quote unquote big name hire. And we can, and I'm not, I'm using air quotes on the quote big name, but the fact that there's a big name hire on this and it's not a, oh, well, we just promoted our AHL guy to, an interim role or something like that. Like that's, that's almost even more surprising to me how all this played out. Yeah. Oh, there's, yeah, you're right. There's only 32 jobs and uh 2.75 million dollar annual salary will, uh, will do a lot of convincing. Um, you know, I, I said this on, on the recent Canucks show that I did last week. And I think Jim Rutherford said as much actually in his press conference last week, where he acknowledged that it was a, he kind of didn't know what he was getting himself into in terms of like mm-hmm. how big of an undertaking or how big of a job it would be. And, yeah. and I mentioned that and then I had someone message me like, how is this acceptable to like hear someone say this, that, 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 you know, isn't new to the league that's been around that presumably has like their finger on the pulse is aware of everything has connections to like use that as an excuse. And I, I do not to make an excuse for him, but, you know, similar to I'm sure what Rick Tockett is thinking here. Like there's for a lot of these people in the game, there's a lot of uh, you know, hubris involved in terms of yeah. them truly believing that, oh, I know it's bad and people are saying it's bad, but when I step in there and, and once I get my hands on it, once I start, you know, doing my job, everything's gonna turn around and then I'm gonna be like I'm gonna be the hero. And I, I think there is that kind of line of thinking involved in in taking on a job like this. Hundred percent. I mean it's there's uh everyone thinks all of a sudden they can be the, the guy that fixes a problem you think like well it doesn't matter how many other people have tried or whatever I, I i can fix this problem and i can do that and i know with talking it's interesting i've i've doing some digging myself on kind of the tv side of things since i still have a couple people who will talk to me on that world um the this past week it was kind of the, the informal this past last Wednesday on TNT 
they kind of knew that was his last show going in. That was something where, from my understanding, talking to people who kind of know what's happening at TNT inside those studios, everything like that. Everyone on the set kind of knew that this was Rick's last show with Turner. Every, everyone knew it. No one really could say it properly, but both sides, both Tockett and Turner, both knew that, okay, at some point, whether it's, even if he hadn't been named the coach of Vancouver that following weekend, he probably wasn't going to be back next week. It was going to be something where eventually it reached the point of, uh, this is, he's been angling to get back into coaching. He had, he took the Turner job, actually. He had a couple, like, assistants, assistant or assistant coach offers, I believe. He may have been an associate coach offer. I don't know for sure on that, but I know we had a couple assistant coach offers that he turned down to take the Turner job. And we could see almost the public, like, um, angling that he's been doing. And I know in Vancouver, I don't know if you guys get the TNT, do, do you guys get the TNT game over the border in Turner? Or is that a... Uh, over, do you get the Turner game over the border in, in Vancouver? We, we, we do, unless unless it involves a Canadian team and then it's on sports. Okay. okay. But yeah, we've seen the... We've seen him asking Eric Carlson rather odd, prying questions about his role in running a power play. We've seen uh, the most recent show, Liam McHugh, who did a really good job of basically doing... I really loved the... Uh, pulled the glasses on and like, oh, Rick Tocket, what are you doing here? Like... He has been publicly angling for this job for a while, and it's, you know what, he's, and at the end of the day, you talk about, like, Jim Rutherford being like, oh, I didn't know what type of trouble this was. Rick Tockett, of all people, cannot claim he doesn't, when, if if this doesn't go well six months from now, there's no way Rick Tockett can go and... Rick Tockett can go and be like, oh, I didn't know this was this big of a trouble. I didn't realize. No, you, you literally were paid to talk about these type of troubles for the last year and a half. So he's, he's painted himself into pride has gotten the best of him to take the job. He wants to coach more power to him on that. But at the end of the day, there's no excuse for you can't, if, if the Canucks are in the same spot a year from now and Rick Tockett's holding press conferences where it's like, I didn't know we had this issue, but no, that's BS. Well, I, 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 I I'm, I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. That's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Like it's 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 not gonna get better anytime soon for a variety of reasons, and that's why I would have if if I were advising him, if he had messaged me and asked, "Hey, what do you think about this?" I would have been like, uh, "You look pretty good right now. If I were you, I'd just wait for another opportunity." But you're right. I mean, just like every coach that goes into media and goes on TV, the whole purpose of it is to keep 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 their name relevant and in conversations yeah. and and have people watching them talking about hockey. And it's basically all sort of like a a cameo or an audition for a future gig, right? That's the whole, and that's the end game. It's not, I'm going to become a media superstar. And so that's why I also like, I I know you mentioned this as well. I wanted to clarify, like there's been some speculation about the timeline in terms of like the four week clause or whatever. Um, I just, I, without any inside knowledge of his contract details, I find it hard to believe. I do have some experience with signing media deals with NHL out clauses uh, to a different degree, obviously, than Rick talking here. But the idea that you would sign, like his, that his agent would get him to sign a contract that prevents him, that makes him wait four weeks to take an NHL job is... I think I, I, I do think that's fair. I do think that's fair. And I pointed it out yesterday that that had been reported that it's out there. But with the more context of a conversation here between you and I and not the... 
uh, the, the Twitter, uh, the, to the Twitter context, I, I do think your point is fair, where even if you were Turner, at the end of the day, um, you're not going to hold a guy there. It's There may have been some dollars that changed hands. There may have been something here or there. I don't know what his contract is. Um, the interesting thing about all of the one interesting thing about that entire scenario is um, I kept looking for just and it's just in a reporting element. I couldn't find um, anyone to deny the existence of that clause. That was the one thing like I kept waiting for. Like I kept like throughout all of this, I kept waiting for someone to either his agent, talk it himself or even someone from within Tur to just come to me and be like, as, I, as I've asked around to be like, oh, well, no, that was that was someone reporting something that's not true. And it's something where no one actually denied it. No one said it was, it could neither confirmed nor denied. Now it's, maybe it'll come in probably now the minute I'm saying this, of course, what it'll be like in an hour, it'll be like, he'll say like F Sean Shapiro, here's what we're going to do. Uh, but Rick doesn't have Twitter anymore. So he doesn't see, so he deleted his Twitter. So he doesn't, uh, he won't see, he won't see, he won't see any of this anyway. Uh, the, the thing about him and Turner that was really interesting, and this is a just a small tangent, it's going to be really interesting to see the shakeup of what this does with the Turner studio, because one of the reasons, and Gretzky has gone on record talking about this, one of the reasons Gretzky has had the success he's had on broadcast television in the United States right now is because of his comfort with, with Tocket. And it will be interesting to see how they replace him uh in that role because he was used in a lot of ways to make Wayne be the more comfortable version of Wayne. So it's gonna be interesting to see this outside thing. You know, Keith Yandel and Henrik Lundquist are gonna get some more reps on TV. It will be interesting to see with that. But I don't know. It's he also he also may he also may from a media perspective, and this is another thing, I also I have been told that uh because we know the Canucks aren't making the playoffs, that Turner is looking at potentially the, the role of having him back on the desk potentially for the playoffs, you know, like, but just actually as a, just thank you for Canucks coach Rick Tockett, because how many times you see that more often in a lot of other sports where a coach or player that's out of the playoffs actually joins the panel and everything like that in the playoffs. But Turner may look into that with Tockett too, I've been told. Yeah. Well, if only there was a, um, an available coach who had a great personality and was beloved they could come on and and replace him. I can't think of anyone in particular, but yeah, I mean, my final point on the four on the four week notice thing is is it just seems like bad business for everyone involved, right? Like in yeah. in normal circumstances for a normal organization, waiting four weeks in season for a coach to become available would just be a complete non-starter, and they would just look in another direction, yeah. essentially disqualify the candidate. So, from his purpose, that's why signing a contract like that would be a disaster. And from TNT's perspective, returner's perspective, that's bad business as well because they want to become yeah. a place where it's like, oh, you're a coach looking to get your name back out there? Yeah, come on here, have some fun, show your personality, show your your chops in terms of X's and O's and breaking plays down during intermission segments. And then once you get a better offer, you can go elsewhere and it's kind of a mutually beneficial partnership. So I think it's much more That's likely fair. financially that the Canucks simply were trying to soften the blow by limiting the amount of time they had to have three coaches on their books. Um, so yeah, I... I do you want to mention? Do I talk about Boudreaux here or or the yeah. Canucks? Because I kind of got points on both, and I and I want to get to both of them equally. Let's go, let's, go, let's get to Bruce first. Okay, let's go to Bruce first. Well, here's the thing: like 
it's so like I I can't even really express how cruel it was to see the situation he was put in behind the bench, especially for these past two games over the weekend. I put on my capital J journalism hat and went to the Canucks game and sat in the press box on the Friday game against the Avalanche and it really felt like I was the only person there who actually cared about the game because I went there to watch the Avalanche and to get a better sense of the level they're playing at. Everyone else there was like so preoccupied about just talking about what a clown show it was and, and everything. It's like almost like the game was the game was an irrelevant sort of it was an excuse to bring people together and to, as opposed to actually mm-hmm. being a meaningful product. Actually, the other person who I think was actually watching the game there was uh, Edmonton Oilers head coach J.J. Woodcroft, who um, they played in Vancouver the following night and in in classic coach fashion was using his his night off, a rarity in the NHL schedule, to to do some scouting. So that was yeah. uh, it was good to see that. But it was just like the, it, all of it was just such a such a surreal sort of situation. And to see Bruce, who I actually don't even know personally, but by all accounts, anyone that's crossed paths with them just speaks so highly of like how like just energetic and kind-hearted and jovial of a character he is he gets hired 13 months ago he comes in they win some games the whole bruce there it is phenomenon takes over like the vibe around the organization even though they don't wind up making the playoffs just takes such a 180 in a condensed period of time compared to where they were at when they hired him and how miserable everyone was under travis green then in the offseason you have him at the draft in that viral moment where like he has like childlike amazement hanging out with Kevin Owens and just yeah. talking about wrestling to him crying on the bench is just like the fact that they were able to to break him down to that capacity and 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 it got to that point is just is astounding to me honestly and and, and just so unacceptable for so many so many different reasons yeah, it is. It's even if I didn't know Bruce, it would be unacceptable. I don't. I don't know him super well. I've talked to him. I talked to him a couple times in my career and crossing paths from. And even when he wasn't, uh, I remember there was he once gave me a pretty great uh, answer. It was when it was we were talking about. Uh, I was doing a story about the like why about coaches and lineups and revealing goalies and there's like for like a gambling angle like should should whatever whenever the angle was like should people should coaches if the NHL wants to get serious about gambling how can you have these lineup decisions whatever and Bruce was had not been tired yet and I remember I called him and we chatted and I asked him about uh kind of his decision to uh just like how coaches view naming a starting goalie and he was he was great. One of the lines I never got to use in his story, but I just remember like him saying to me, "It's like like honestly, if I just felt like it was a day I wanted to f with the media guys, I didn't name my starting goalie." <laughs> it was great. Like I, I loved his personality. I loved the way he remembered it, it, this was a game. Like this is right. hockey's a game. Games are supposed to be fun, and Bruce was willing to embrace fun. And it was just it's so sad to see someone who has lived this game for being a game to be broken down the way he was broken down and dragged along and just treated that way. Yeah, it really was. And and I think, you know, tying this into the Canucks then as like a bigger picture sort of deal, like for full disclosure, I really wanted to to write this up at uh, our shared uh, place of work, EP Ringside. And um, I reached out to the editors and, and, and JD told me, 
that he already had something cooking and and so i uh i backed off and let him handle it and and it's good that i did because he his write-up of it was something that i highly recommend everyone reads and i think even for people who aren't subscribed yeah. to the site it's unlocked so it is yeah uh, still go check that out but the reason why it's important here and i think this part might get lost in the shuffle a little bit is just that the demise of this franchise like cannot be overstated like i, I said it's become they become a laughing stock and a joke right now and that doesn't happen overnight and it's been a long time brewing but here's the thing, Sean, like around the turn of the 2010s, the Canucks were right up there at the top of the sport. Like they never, yeah. they never won the cup. They fell one game short and that would have put a final stamp on all the accomplishments of that era. And because they fell short to the Bruins and, and at home and got bullied for a, for a number of those games, um, you know, it's it's for whatever reason, like it's viewed as like a disappointment or like, oh, well, you know, there this isn't the gold standard, this isn't the model that you should be striving as as to to replicate yourself. And and I just push back about against that so much because like by any other measurement other than winning the Stanley Cup, they were right up there as as a model franchise, right? Like under Mike Gillis and Lawrence Gilman, they were at the cutting edge of so many areas as an organization from talent acquisition to contract negotiations and retention of those players to how like they were deploying players. I remember like they were one of the first teams that they, they really caught my eye when they had Manny Malhotra and they were just like exclusively using him for defensive zone draws and, and trying to get the Sedins out every time in the offensive zone. And it was such like an extreme way of deploying their players based on role and skill, um, you know, to being ahead of the curve and in, in performance optimization where they like had all these like sleep doctors and they were really managing player fatigue and trying to get the most out of them back when load management wasn't really a thing and we didn't really talk about it as much. They really weren't leaving any stones unturned in the pursuit of like finding that little competitive edge. And for me personally, like all that stuff played a large role in, in me doing what I do today because I was at this age in Vancouver, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then just diving into it and learning more of what they were doing really made me kind of like fall in love with it and, and capture my attention intrigued me in the possibilities i was like well everyone in this league seems to do things one certain way what if you do it differently and you try new kind of more progressive innovative stuff could you get results and then that was reflected in their results both individually in terms of their top players and the team results and so to see them now where in a pretty short period of time they've found themselves at the bottom of the league in every one of those respects and are falling so far behind competitively is just staggering to me. And I think that is the overarching takeaway here beyond this like individual, I don't even want to say isolated incident because it clearly isn't, but um, yeah. like this is the extreme example, but it ties into so many other things that they've just completely failed on. I think it's also the slow burn into what's next too, right? Like it's the whole thing where there's, you have the immediate aftermath of the coaching change and everything like that, but then you're going to have, you're going to have Horvat leave. You're, you start moving into the question of what does this mean for Pedersen? Like, I think just kind of you add all of the past and the present, and then you start looking at kind of the slow burn and the the way this is going to continue to impact the franchise. Like, I think that just help that puts elevates the pressure points on everything. Where I don't see, <laughs> like, I, I don't see, I don't see a happy ending. For anyone currently involved with 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 the team right now, like it's just it's frustrating when you look at it, and it's frustrating. I'm not a Canucks fan or anything like that, but it's frustrating when you see a franchise like that where at least there's teams where they're bad and the 
but you at least can kind of see, I can see where the light at the end of the tunnel can be. And for some teams right now in this year of for Chicago or in Arizona, clearly it is through winning a draft lottery and stuff like that. And, and obviously it's still taking a chance, but there's still the feasibility of, I can see that silver lining. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel of this. For Vancouver, you try to find that. I just, I struggle. I struggle. And it's just frustrating to see a team kind of in that spot when <laughs> you don't want to see teams in that spot. You want you want to be able to see the path forward for at least everyone. But even if they're even if the path forward is yet to be defined, but at least I don't even see where it is here. Well, and that, the discouraging part is like you're right. I think it's an important distinction. Like winning a championship is hard, right? And not everyone gets yes. to do it. Yeah. But running a, a competent organization that makes reasonable decisions and treats people fairly is should be more manageable. I don't think that should be as elusive. Like I think that's yeah. a pretty low bar to clear. And to reach this level of dysfunction, like can you remember a franchise that was springing more leaks, like quite literally in terms of like information trickling out like this, like for this <laughs> for the for 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 everyone yeah. to know that Rick Tockett was the Vancouver Canucks head coach weeks in advance of him being hired. And then for them to have the lack of respect for everyone involved to come out in his introductory press conference and say, oh, that way this morning we decided to make a coaching change. It's like, come on, like, or let, let, let's be real. It's 2023. Everyone has access to the internet. I think, I think yeah. we're well past that. Yeah. I, it's hard to like, um, the, uh, when, uh, when Florida left, um, the, uh, Gerard Glenn. Yeah, when Gerard Glenn got left, spot just got left on the side of the road. Now that wasn't, there wasn't the leaks and anything like that. But that's kind of like those are the things. Those are kind of like the coaching ousters in my mind of like embarrassment, where it's like of like this is how you don't treat a person. This is how you and the Bruce one's worse because of how it got drawn out and the way the intelligence everyone's intel it insulted everyone's intelligence publicly throughout the process. It's so much worse. But to try to think of anything close is, I think of, it's a one-off instance with that, but then maybe it's not a one-off there because they treated, they, they didn't really give Brunetta a fair shake and they then brought in Paul Maurice and now they, and, and I mean, whatever, but that's, but what, well, no, Sean, I, I actually think it's the, like the, uh, the opposite. Yeah, yeah. That's an extreme example. But if you, if you think about it, the reason why that got so much attention was the the Panthers of the time had quote unquote the computer boys running that's the team yeah, and they were not buddy buddy with a lot of the big name insiders and so they actually weren't leaking as much information to them and that's why that's there true. was so much hand wringing and fake outrage of people being like can you believe they did this to a hockey lifer in Gerard Glant whereas in this case the Canucks are leaking everything to every one of these insiders and so for years, it was a smart strategy, actually, because that's why they were treated with kid gloves for the most part. Like everyone's like, oh, Vancouver is such a tough market. You got to, you got to, you know, it, I feel for them. There's a lot of pressure involved. And it's like, well, you're saying that because your friend is leaking you all this information. And now obviously this situation with Bruce was so deplorable and everyone was united in it that it was a, it was an easy thing for people to be like, all right, like, yeah, this has gone too far. Like the Canucks are, well, I, are in trouble here. Yeah, it's it's the I don't expect insiders to not do their job, but it's also kind of uh it's kind of funny to look at the um 
no one is like we do, we talk about how we get upset at the Canucks and you get people penning their angry columns at them and everything like that, but there hasn't been enough put of a focus where it's like, oh, we know that Bruce Boudreaux had a 9.30 a.m. meeting. Like, like we know that he had a 9.30 a.m. meeting with the, with, with, with the coach, with, with, with the coaches. Like we know that was, that was put out there like right away. Like I think as we look at this and as we, the thing that's going to continue to evolve as we look at this will be the fact of the matter is we'll see, we'll, we'll start to have more of those stop and like realize like, how did this much get out like there's a line like there is like and i say this as a media person like there's certain there's certain spots where what the detroit red wings and steve eiserman do is ridiculous where you don't even let assistant coaches talk to the media that's ridiculous but on the flip side there's there's a line that you need that teams need to keep in mind and vancouver just broke it completely like it's (laughs) yeah i mean just think about like but, this. The reason why I say this isn't an isolated incident is because think about how many people at pretty much every level of the organization have left in, in what I describe as contentious and ugly terms over the past couple of yeah. years, right? And so yeah. this isn't a one-off. This is obviously an extreme, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, the reason why I'm skeptical anything is going to change, regardless of who the coach is, is is it comes from the top down, right? And uh, it crystallizes an important life lesson here, and this is a good way, a good part to end on where. The reason why the Canucks have gotten themselves into so much trouble over the past handful of years is because they've tried to take the take a shortcut and to cut corners, right? And that involved, all right, our goal is to try everything we possibly can to just make the playoffs. Once you make the playoffs, anything can happen, right? And so we want to get some home home game revenue from that, yeah. and and we don't want to take the loss of being really bad intentionally for years. And so that's what we're going to do. And then in that misguided kind of perpetual pursuit of just trying to do the bare minimum, the situation they've walked themselves into is they have $85 million in player salary this year. They have $7.25 million in coaching salary of three names, as I said. And in the long run, because they tried to cheap out in cut quarters, they are going to pay more now, right? And so it's it's a good reminder of like, you know, doing the right thing and investing in long-term health and having a plan and executing it versus the team building approach that they've had. And I think that is, that is what's at play here ultimately. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously in Vancouver, you've lived this and breathed this more every day. And I can't imagine what's that, what the, I can't imagine what that's like to actually have this as the day to day, as opposed to the distraction for everyone else. And I'm sitting here in the Detroit area for everyone else. This has been the, the distraction in the bad car crash that you could look at as you go, as you drive along, you're like, oh, well, eh, at least it's not that. Like, I can't imagine what it's like to be just like, you're in that, what it's just like to be in that every single day. It's like you're in the car crash, and instead of it getting cleaned up, we're like, ah, we're just going to sit in it for three months. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's been bleak. It's been as uh, It's been as bleak as you could, uh, you could probably imagine. All right, Sean, let's take our quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll finish up with uh, with a variety of other topics that will hopefully be more encouraging and, and uplifting. So you're listening to the Hockeypedia cast streaming on the Sports Radio Network. All right, we're back here in the Hockey PDO cast with Sean Shapiro. So, Sean, 
let's let's get into some some more kind of loosey goosey fun stuff here. Let's talk about ooh, the the three on three overtime format. You wrote about this recently. I actually got a um a listener question or or comment about it that ties into it. So you essentially wrote about this recently and, and you had a pitch on sort of how the ECHL uh, has chosen to to run their overtimes in terms of increasing the length, but to a reasonable amount, not necessarily doubling it, so that you kind of check a lot of boxes. Um, let the listeners know kind of about that and uh, and sort of what the proposal is, and then we can get into more of the details. Yeah, so I've always been someone who has been anti-shootout more in the past. I've been, the, oh, let's just go 10 minutes of three-on-three, three, just because I love three-on-three. Three. I love overtime. It'd be great. Let's, but... That's not feasible. It's not possible. And and so I had someone uh, who's got some connections with the ECHL who, and these numbers, if, if I could have, to be 100% honest, I could have probably, these numbers are all public, so I'm going to go find them, but I had somebody who had access to the ECHL's numbers and was able to get them to share them with me. But essentially, the ECHL is three on three overtime, but it's a seven minute format instead of, instead of five minutes and seven minutes. And the numbers on that have shown since the 20, uh, 2018-19 season, the last year of five minutes of three-on-three overtime, there was, of, of the overtime games, there were, I want to make sure I have this right here, um, 61% of games that went to overtime um, ended in overtime, which meant 39% of all overtime games went into a shootout, which is not really ideal. You don't really... Mm-hmm. You don't want four in every ten three on three sessions going to a shootout, and it's this season in the NHL. Uh, just to give you an example, this season in the NHL it's at thirty-one. The NHL this season, if you see an NHL game go to overtime, there's a one in three chance, basically. It's thirty-one point two percent when I did. Is this is this Shapiro's math corner again? This is uh, this is someone else doing the math for me. Yeah, Sean Shapiro presenting it. Yeah. Uh, but. ECHL goes from 61% of overtime games ending in overtime and only 39, 39% of show. This year in the ECHL, 83.5% of overtime games end in overtime. You have meaning, meaning, not going to do the math, meaning smaller percentage go to a shootout. Yes. And, and you look at, of the 79 games that have gone to overtime, 76, um, sorry, 66 were won in the traditional five minutes and 10 were won in that additional two minutes between, you know, and, and so you're in and, and last season and the numbers have pretty been pretty strong across the board for this ECHL. It's always in the 73 to 77% of now games are ending in overtime. So we've basically taken away, um, over the past four years, we've had 81 shootouts eliminated from the ECHL by adding two minutes to the clock in overtime. And I personally feel that this should be the NHL policy going forward. I think it's something that, um, like all things, it would probably have to be test-driven in the AHL for a year because the NHL, as much as the AHL likes to say it's its own entity, they test-drive so many things for the NHL. They test-drived like they were the test-drivers for no no touch icing, for... um, for the initial, th- the current three-on-three format in general, there's a bunch of things that have been tested and storyboarded in the AHL before they came to the NHL. This is one where ECHL should, the AHL should adopt this, frankly, immediately from the ECHL, and it should be the long-term solution. And 
when I look at it, obviously it's it's not it is it is can, it can be as simple as hey, two more minutes of three on three more chance to score a goal. The other thing about it, and I talked to uh, when I, before I published the story, I talked to the coach that Idaho Steelheads ever ever Sheen about just kind of his thoughts on it and ran my theories by him. I've since spoken to another ECHL coach as well, just to make sure I wasn't completely off. And basically it's a, with the additional two minutes, it changes things from the beginning. It takes away the the conservative nature of you're not playing. It's not realistic to think you can survive seven minutes of three on three. You it's, you're going to go teams, more teams go for it right away. More depth gets tested and even though there can be some sloppy finishes at the end because you get more some more depth guys out there than you want, at least it leads to finishes and some chances. So I, I think adding a minute amount of minutes to the NHL schedule over this grand scheme of things, I think I think it's worth it. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you. What are your thoughts on this? Wow, I like it. Let's get even yeah. whackier, though. Here's a question. Okay. Here's here's a comment from Daniel Huber, who writes to us all the way from Germany. By the way, shout out to our okay. international yeah. listeners. asks Wouldn't it be great if once teams go to overtime, they play the full five on minutes of three on three, regardless of if someone scores? Which, I I guess you know, if you play it out you know, from a game theory perspective, probably increases the likelihood of more shootouts. Um, because it gives you a chance to, if you, yeah. instead of, uh, you know, the golden goal, instead of someone scoring yeah. the game's over, it gives you theoretically whatever, how much time's left on the clock to come back and, and score yourself. From a game strategy perspective, though, I love it because yeah. it leads to some really interesting scenarios where a team scores early and then all of a sudden, I would love to see how aggressive the other team gets in the pursuit of tying in and potentially taking the lead in those final four minutes, let's say, in terms of pulling the goalie, going four on three, trying out some new stuff, how they use their players, the way they choose to play, how how much they go for broke, or whether they're just comfortable losing by one. Um, you know, it would theoretically create more scoring as well, and not that that's a big problem for the league anymore, but uh, certainly I think you'd see more goals, and it would it would make goal differential matter quite a bit, right? Like imagine you go to overtime, yeah. and all of a sudden you lose by three, and then it's yeah. that's that that's not that it's going to be make a raker season, but um, I think it creates all sorts of different scenarios that would provide much more intrigue to uh, overtime than than already exists in my in my opinion. It's not it's it's crazy, and they would never do it. But it's not I I I, I like it. Um, it would actually give us the intensity required that we want from the three on three format in the All Star game. It would actually mm-hmm. give the actual intensity to that um, because it's game on the line you're actually playing for games that matter so it would actually bring some of that in play um we'd have to it's i'm 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 my brain can't get off the fact where you said like oh what would happen if the team pulled the goalie we'd have to change an nhl rule because if you pull the goalie in overtime and let up a goal you lose the loser wait did you know that i did know that i mean it's i don't think it's ever it's never happened in the nhl right yeah but yeah in the khl yeah yeah, it's it's so you're not in in the NHL. It's it's uh it's actually the it's a it's a long it was a long time ago, and it was actually a time that uh, before he was smashing iPads and banning them from benches, that John Tortorella was actually the guy who pulled the goalie in overtime and realized that he would get a point no matter what. He was forward thinking at the time in the AHL a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
this is good. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, all for yeah, any yeah. scenario that yeah. creates more considerations and options, right? As opposed to it just being you being backed into a corner where it's like, all right, this one thing happens no matter what. And that's yeah. kind of the issue with, with the current format where it's like, all right, you play and then at some point you generally see them kind of reach like a gentlemanly agreement. Like, all right, this is just going to go to a shootout. And and then yeah. you, you have a couple shootout attempts and that's it and everyone goes home relatively dissatisfied. And so- I did I did see a theory someone threw out to me the idea of doing having a rule where if you take a penalty in overtime, you play till the end of the penalty. Like if you're on a breakaway, right? Or breakaway bad example because we have penalty shot, but uh I slash you, right, with thirty seconds left in overtime because I know that it's whatever, it's thirty seconds to kill and I have just to kill thirty seconds to get to the shootout. What if we put a rule in place where if you commit a penalty with under two minutes left in overtime, overtime then gets extended through the length of that penalty. That was another yeah. theory that someone threw out to me, which I'm not opposed to. Yeah, I like that. I know this is a big Jeff Merrick thing. I was watching a game the other day. I forget who who it was, so apologies for that. But someone got in a fight. Oh, it was uh, it was it was Thomas Shatara. So the, okay, so the Devils were playing the Sharks, and then with like ten seconds left in overtime, there's like a post whistle scrub, and Thomas Shatara basically gets in a fight, which is a shocking sentence to say. I know. And then he comes out and he scores the shootout winner. Yeah. And after. And it was like, okay, he probably should not have been eligible to no, compete in the shootout. Been. He just got yeah. ejected from the game. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like shootout, the shootout really like operates in its own universe completely, irrespective of every other thing that happens over the course of an NHL game. So it is ridiculous. Okay. Let's end on this. So from your unnumbered thoughts that you mm-hmm. publish every other week on EP Ringside, I believe you had a note in there about iPads and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned sort of Tortorella and Talkit and, and kind of these grumpy, grumpy coaches pulling the, uh, old man yelling at cloud routine mm-hmm. about how ridiculous the iPads are and how they're ruining the game and how we used to be just fine without them and all the stuff that you'd expect to hear from them. And then you brought up how. Jason Robertson, who is a pretty good player, who's having a pretty pretty nice little season here, um, loves using them and uses them to great effect. And so uh, I'm, I yeah. want to talk about that a little bit and sort of not even the pros and cons because I really just don't see yeah. the cons, just the pros of it and sort of how um, the, the the possibilities, I guess, it's it's provided players to really kind of optimize their game. Yeah, I think to, just to continue on the Robertson story, and I apologize because I can't remember the name of his personal skills coach, but before every single game, Jason watches. He watches every single one of his prior shifts with his personal skills coach. They go over it right before every single game. They break down the individual shifts, and it is, it's a tool he uses to better himself, to better how he gels with his line mates and Obviously, when Robey Hintz is healthy, him and Joe Pavelski and Jason Robertson are one of the best lines of hockey. And there's, and it's, he's not as big of a look at the iPad during the game guy. He does still. He's, it's hard to find a player that doesn't now, but it's, it's still a, such a tool that allows, you're talking about a guy whose game is built on hockey IQ and Intel and everything like that. I just found it fascinating to see, to, to see how he continues to add to that. How do you keep adding more until? How do you add those other little elements where, you know what? It's a game of, it's, it's terribly coaching cliche thing, but it truly is a game of interest. How do you find and add those little Intel pieces? And if you can find that 
in the game. If you can, if it's, if you're a coach and if you're a coach and you've got a, it's an emotional moment, a guy comes off the ice, he messes up or whatever, right? Like if you start yelling at him and you start drawing something, poor on a whiteboard and stuff like that, how many times do you think in history of hockey that message has just been completely lost where it's like, oh damn, the coach is mad. I'm just going to, as opposed to, well, hey, you did this wrong and here it is and you, you can see that right away. Like it's, it's a tool that makes the it's a tool that makes the game better. And I know people don't some old hockey curmudgeons are gonna be like, oh well, can't have the iPads on the map. But like it makes the game better. It's not it's not uh <laughs> if if we if you if the end of the day this is entertainment, right? That's that's something that we all often forget. At the end of the day this is entertainment. The game is supposed to be as best as possible. So you and I turn it on and say, like, hey, I wanna watch this again. And if the hockey players are better, I'm more likely to want to watch this again. And therefore, and therefore, I have an actual motivation to want players to get better. And if iPads are making them better, I'm good with it. Like, it's... <laughs> yeah, well, here's a, here, something that all the best players, I would say, have in common, regardless of their respective skill set, is this, like, superhuman... Uh, part of their brain that allows them to recognize patterns in incredibly fast sequences and yes. then leverage it to their advantage, right? And so you see that with Robertson. I was talking about this with uh, last week about Nathan McKinnon where an undertold part of his intensity, we all joke about the diet, but his ability or his willingness to like absorb just unconscionable amounts of tape uh not necessarily during the game as you're saying sitting on the bench yeah. on the ipad but like in preparation for looking for every single little edge you can get on someone and on himself in terms of stuff he's doing right or wrong and looking for positioning for coverage for mechanics right like something as trivial or unimportantly seeming as like where the defenseman has their stick down on the ice and then how you can kind of exploit that and where ways you can make them uncomfortable but where you put the puck and so little things like that like i'm all for incorporating that and using it to your full advantage and if that happens over the course of a game where you have an extended break and you're sitting there and you can you have a chance to to do so like i'm all for it it's similar to what you see in the nfl where like the quarterback after the drive is sitting on the bench and they're looking at screen grabs of the defensive formation and kind of what went right or what went wrong like yes that that should be something that improves the quality of the product because the players are in theory learning from their mistakes on the fly and making sure they don't make them again. And so that's going to create a better, more enjoyable, uh, viewer friendly product. 100%. And it's, and, and it's not just the players who are using them. I know there's the occasional, we get the, um, the comments from Tortorella make it sound like coaches versus players on the iPad. And that's not the case. I mean, there's most coaches are using them are using the data and using that just as much as the players are. It's you have, and I know some things like some things will still be on a feel or whatever, but do you know how many coaches make their face off dot decisions now based off data from an iPad where it'll be like, cause other team ice is the buck. Other, other team ice is the buck. You get to pick the side for the draw. You could just go with your gut or you're just going to go quickly off. You get out your gut, the iPad right there. Like, okay, right side, right side. Cause of this scenario, like, it's not a players versus coaches thing. I think the the Tortorella comments 
is something that sometimes gets makes it sound like he's speaking for the populace, which is not the case. Um, I mean, the Maple Leafs, for example, like you go into the Maple Leafs locker room, every single player has the iPad sitting right on the bench, like even in the visiting room. Like it is, it is very prevalent of how much the players are encouraged to use the iPad. Like it makes the game better. The guys are picking up more information on the fly as they go. And at the same time, it, it leads to some funny screen grabs for us at home. Like, I mean, I remember one time there's like, I took a picture of like, I think it was a Jets game. Kyle Connor was holding the iPad and there's a hit in front of the bench. And he's like, like, like leaning back, leaning back. And it looks like he's like trying to take a picture of an animal at the zoo. Like, I mean, it's, it's comical. Like can we enjoy some comedy too. Like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> All right, John. Well, I, I was going to say, this is the part of the show where you promote your work, but I feel like we just talked about like your two most recent articles. But I do, I, I do have, I do have one thing to say actually. Yeah. So our, our conversation, and I'm working on, I got another call to make on it, but I'm gonna do something on it for likely over at the Substack. But doing something on the, uh, because uh, using this show as my accountability meter, I talked about going into the new year wanting to do something on the Michigan and everything like that, mm-hmm. and I actually had someone reach out to me and. That person had some really interesting insight and some really interesting looks at things and had a wonderful conversation with that person and uh, going to uh, you have more about uh, kind of the Michigan and for looking at it from a goalie perspective. And I'll have something on that later this week. Um, and honestly, it all comes down to it was a PDO cast listener who heard our conversation and sent me a DM on Twitter. So there thanks you to you. Well, no, thanks. Thanks to the listener. That's the part. That's the beauty and the power of the PDO cast and the, uh, the great community we've built here. So. Sean, thank you for uh, for doing your part and helping cultivate that com- community with uh, what's becoming a you're really becoming a staple on the show. I feel like we're doing like every second Monday or something. So let's uh, yeah, let's keep that up. This is a blast, man. Highly recommend people check out your work. Looking forward to reading uh, that piece about the Michigan. We'll be back here tomorrow with more. I'm having Jack Hahn on. We're gonna answer your questions. And so if you have anything you want to hear us talk about, feel free to send that in. In the meantime. Thank you for listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.